Hello, and welcome to Backblast, where we take a blast back to the past and take a deep dive into the world of video game history. I'm your host, Ty Pickney, and this week I'll be venturing into the world of arcades. Go ahead and close your eyes, not if you're driving, and imagine an arcade. Are you thinking of a small, dingy arcade with a dark, whimsical carpet, where the cabinets are lined up by the dozen in rows and on every wall available? Or are you thinking of a huge, open warehouse with games that drop balls from 20 feet into numbered holes, where there are bright lights on every game and a huge prize wall with everything from Tootsie Rolls to Xbox Ones? While both are arcades, I want to take a look into why arcades went from feeling like your uncle's basement to feeling like you just rolled into Vegas. You may be old enough to remember wanting to go to the arcade with any free time you had and any quarters you could scrounge up, or maybe going to an arcade was something that you did with your family on a Saturday night once a month. Or maybe you're like me. I fell right in the space between these periods where arcades were few and far between. I remember going to the mall and maybe there was a small arcade that I could go and spend an hour in while my grandma was walking around Yankee Candle. I also remember my dad taking me to the Dave and Busters that was an hour away for the night. He would ask me, want to go get some Goldfingers tonight? And I would drop everything I was doing to get ready and go spend the evening playing video games, winning prizes, and of course, eating our order of chicken fingers that my dad was excited about. The thing is, I didn't think of it as the arcade. It was Dave and Buster's. An arcade in my mind was the place on The Simpsons where Bart and Milhouse would go after school and spend all their money. To figure out what happened to arcades, I think we have to take a look at a couple of different factors. These are all not mutually exclusive, so I'll do my best to split them up before weaving them all back together. I do want to say that this is all speculation and I'm not saying that any of this is negative or wrong, just my thoughts on the subject. The first thing I want to take a look at is the social life of video games. Back in the day, arcades were a place to go after school, Friday nights, weekends, or any free time that you had. But one of the draws was that it was a place to hang out with your friends. Kids would meet up with three or four buddies so they can all play games together with or against each other. They could be working together as Ralph, Lizzie, and George and Rampage as they try to destroy all of the cities, or they could face off in Pac-Man to see who could get the highest score. They would talk about their week, their day, who they had crushes on. It was the social hour for many kids around this time. These times were special because they were helping kids work together toward a goal or instill some friendly competition. This social grooming was a complete norm back then, but as the times changed, so did technology. And no, this isn't me bashing technology and smartphones. I'm a millennial. I love my electronics and everything about them. I just really do believe that they had a huge effect in more ways than one. Anyway, kids started getting cell phones and were able to communicate with each other all the time without having to be in person. Those Friday night hangouts weren't as crucial when you could text your friends about their week instead of meeting at the arcade and getting out your anger about your crappy teacher while pretending to smash their face in while playing Mortal Kombat. I think another point that we can't forget is that these teen meetups started to become more and more scarce because parents didn't want them to. Parents didn't want their kids to go to some dingy arcade with cigarette butts out on the front sidewalk where the carpets were stained with red ices and the only adult was some guy with sideburns always flipping a screwdriver in his hands where you could barely make out a mumble he says. 
Parents wanted their kids to stay at home where they could make sure they were safe, where they know what dangers there are and aren't. Or maybe they could go over to Timmy's because his mom got him a Nintendo after he got all A's. I get it. I mean, in their eyes, it was safer, cheaper, and they could keep an eye on all the kids that wanted to hang out. But they didn't realize that they, along with every other parent that was doing this, were slowly killing the arcade as we knew it. This leads me into the next reason arcades have changed. Video games at home. See, home consoles had been a thing since the early 70s. The Magnavox Odyssey came out in September 1972. While very primitive, it was a big seller. Five years later, the Atari 2600 was released. They were a big hit, but the issues came after. Once third-party programmers were able to create games for the 2600, the market became flooded with crappy games that nobody wanted to buy. This is commonly believed to be the main cause of the video game crash of 1983. There were too many games on hardware that could barely keep up with what personal computers were starting to be able to do. That is until 1985 when Nintendo released their Nintendo Entertainment System in the US, two years after the original release in Japan, where they called the system the Famicom. According to the fandom wiki for video game sales, by the end of 1986, the NES had 1.1 million units sold in the US and a whopping 10.5 million units sold in Japan. And that's just Nintendo. This isn't even taking into account the other Sega consoles and Atari consoles at home, and by this time, the quality of the games were reaching what couldn't be done in the arcades. Video games were entering a new world where you didn't have to pay each time you wanted to play. You could just pop in the cartridge and turn it on. This allowed people to play over and over without any repercussions. They were able to get good and practice all while staying in the comfort of their homes. This is probably when adults started playing more video games than ever before. They didn't have to go into the gross kids arcade to try Tetris. They could try out the copy of Super Mario Brothers they bought for their kid at home. Side note, as of March 2018, it's reported that the core Super Mario Brothers series has sold 351.79 million units worldwide, which is incredible. So more and more kids are playing video games at home. Sony joined in the competition and released the PlayStation as well. By the mid-90s, kids had so many options for gaming at home, and they were getting cooler and cooler. My first memory of playing a video game was playing Sonic the Hedgehog on the Sega Genesis. This is the game that cultivated my love of video games for the next 25 years. I was always excited to get a new game or even watch my dad play a new video game. I could emerge myself into the television for hours trying to get through World 8 of Super Mario Bros. 3, or trying to find every gem in Spyro the Dragon. These were totally different than going into the small arcade in the mall just to spend $5 for 30 minutes of not getting past Stage 4 and Space Invaders. While I did enjoy going to play these games, I was much happier at home trying to learn all my games the best that I could, as I imagine was the same feeling for many kids. As the years went on, there were new systems with upgraded graphics and the games were able to be longer. It just wasn't something that the one quarter and three lives could get you at the arcade. Microsoft eventually joined in too with the release of the Xbox. The competition between the systems gained many die-hard fans for their brand. And since these types of games weren't even being touched by the arcade industry, something had to change. This is where I think the big change happened. Gone were the times of Street Fighters, Space Invaders, and Tappers, and enter the Redemption games. Prizes. How do we get people to leave their homes and come to arcades again? Give them stuff. Kids like toys and candy and prizes, right? 
so we need to somehow let them win something. Arcade games started to give out tickets. You know, the little pieces of paper that came spurting out when you won a jackpot, filling your cup to the brim. The idea was that people come in and spend money on games and win tickets and then quote unquote spend those tickets on cheap prizes that would make the kids happy. Of course we all know about this practice because it's kind of what the model still looks like. But now most of the industry uses card swipers to handle the transactions of the tickets and the credits. The inclusions of tickets and prizes influence the types of games being made. They went from being more skill-based games like beat-em-ups and vertical shooters to more simple timing games, rail shooters, or simply luck-based games. Of course, there still are some skill-based games out there, they're just vastly outnumbered by the simple ones. I worked as a manager at a large-scale arcade for about three years and definitely noticed this trend. I looked back at some work stuff I had and was able to find out some interesting information. When I worked there, we had 149 games. I use the term game loosely, but 149. Of those, I counted 22 video games, which is what we call the games that did not give out tickets or a prize. That's a whopping 15% of all the games that were just for playing, not winning. But even crazier, of those 22 video games, 14 of them were repeats. Most of the racers have multiple machines linked so people can race together. So that leaves us with a total of eight different video games. That's right, only eight. There were four racers, three shooters, and one dancing game. A mere 5% of our arcade was dedicated to letting people just play games to play games. It's crazy when you stop and think about it. The rest of the arcade was filled with redemption games. Instant prize winners, coin pushers, and luck games. Instant prize winners are the claw machines or the game where you have to get the key through the hole to grab the gift card. You swipe your money card and try your luck at trying to grab the prize right from the machine itself. My favorite was this huge game we had called Mega Color Match by LAI. It was very simple, there was a big wheel separated into slices that would change color. Just hit the button when it's the right color and when the whole wheel was the same color you win a prize. Simple design, big flashy colors, and it was loud when people were playing it to draw nearby ears in. It was exactly what people came for. Of course there were sports games, the basketballs, beanbag tosses, and skee balls. These were fun enough, but of course they all gave you tickets based on how well you did. The luck based games were anything from Sega's licensed deal or no deal game to one of our biggest money makers, literally and figuratively, Monster Drop by Benchmark Games. This was a 13 and a half foot tall ball drop where the ball would drop and bounce around and whichever hole it lands in, that's how many tickets you get. We had four of them back to back. They were so big and bright and you could see them from the other side of the building. And when somebody won the jackpot, everybody knew. But even with all the flash and appeal of the game, it really was just pressing a button, waiting for the ball to bounce around and do its thing, and then see where it lands. No enemies to take out or avoid, no boss to beat, and definitely no high score. The last type of game that I'll bring up is what I'll call app games. Well, there's coin pushers too, but we've all seen those. These app games are what seemed so mystifying to me. What I'm talking about is the games that are big shiny versions of what you already play on your phone. The first one I remember seeing anywhere was Flying Tickets by Bandai Namco. This is the arcade version of Flappy Bird. Remember Flappy Bird? Hopping through those pipes trying to beat your high score of 34 before Marsha from down the hall beat you first? Well, this was that, just bigger. There was also Grand Piano Keys by Baytech, which was the same as all of those Piano Tiles apps. And there were games that literally were apps turned into arcade games. 
Fruit Ninja and Crossy Road are two that stick out. I think it's very interesting that these games do so well at arcades now. I mean, why would people spend their money to play the games that they already have on their phone? Maybe they just really, really love Fruit Ninja and can't physically help themselves when they see it in front of them. Maybe it's the familiarity of playing something they know. Or maybe it's that they're really good at the game and they think they can win a bunch of tickets. I think it's probably a mixture of all three. It's fun, it's familiar, and I can win. Now let's break down the size and environment of these new arcades. I talked a little bit earlier about how arcades were dark, dingy teen hangout spots in the past. Now they're huge. The place I worked was 80,000 square feet and used to be a Kmart. A Kmart! A whole department store. That's a lot of space to either rent or buy. Oh, and the industry doesn't call them arcades anymore. Now they're called Family Entertainment Centers, or FECs for short. The actual arcade was only a portion of our space. A large portion, but not the whole place. There was a restaurant, go-karts, laser tag, and party rooms, can't forget those, all in addition to the arcade. Our arcade did pull in a lot of revenue, but we needed to have all of those other things in order to make sure we made enough money. It's the same with all the FECs. This summer, Dave & Buster's had an active TV ad that was for their Eat and Unlimited play deal. Bring people in with the food, stay for the games. By the way, I'll read an excerpt from the fine print on this ad. Unlimited video gameplay is valid only on day of purchase for non-redemption games and excludes all ticket redemption and virtual reality games. It excludes all ticket redemption games. And I can tell you that Dave & Buster's had a very similar spread of types of games in their arcade. And if you remember from earlier, the amount of video games that we had were 5% of our total games. Now, I'm not trying to talk crap about them. I mean, we did the same thing with some of our deals. They only counted for the actual video games we outlined earlier. But the point is, they have to focus on food. I mean, even when you walk into a Dave & Buster's, you walk directly into the restaurant dining area with huge screens for sporting events and a big stocked bar. It's only once you pass all of that that you get into the arcade section. If you take a look at Main Event's website, there's a ton of advertising for their birthday parties, bowling, and food, but not much for their arcade. While I think that both of these facilities have great looking arcades, they can't just be the only focus if they want to run efficiently. These companies have figured out a way to do a great job of drawing people in. Like I mentioned earlier, it feels like you're walking into Vegas. The lights are flashy, bright, and most importantly, big. The sounds pouring out of the games are enticing and beg you to swipe your card. With all of the food and everything that they offer, they make it so you could spend the whole night there. Now you may have also heard about the recent uprising of barcades. They're popping up in bigger cities near college towns. They are bars that don't have pool tables and darts. Their main draw is the retro video games. There are two of these barcades about 45 minutes away from me in the city where I went to college. These are my favorite places to hang out with some buddies. The theming, everything from the wall decor to the tables, the drinks, they were all video game themed. One was a more polished space where everything looked sharp and clean and styled, and the other one looked like a copy of those old dark arcades from yesteryear. The second one was really cool as it had a whole room filled with a couple couches, some recliners, and old TVs where they had modded consoles where you could play almost any game you could think of on the old systems themselves. It was really neat. But one thing both of these places had in common was that all of the games were free as long as you buy a drink. See, these places were just glorified bars. They made money on expensive drinks and a small food menu, but they brought in business by offering free arcade games. Of course, all the drinks were named after video games or references to gaming. At the more polished bar, I once got a small drink that cost $16. 
I got to keep the little cup it came in, but it's easy to see how they make their money. But even though gaming isn't where they made their money, it was obvious that video games and gaming were still at the core of their business. They don't care if you spend four hours trying to get your high score on Dig Dug, as long as you're drinking, they're happy. But that's what makes me realize that there's no way for an arcade to focus on video games alone with no other backbone to lean on. I think that these barcades are the only way for classic arcades to live on, for now at least. Let's talk about the redemption area for a minute. This is what the prize area is called, where you used to turn in your tickets and they would weigh them out in these big buckets, or if they were fancy they had a ticket eater that would suck up all your tickets and spit out a receipt with your total on it. Nowadays, since everything is stored on cards, they just scan it and tell you how many tickets you have. But in the redemption areas, there are tons of different prizes. Everything from little plastic dinosaurs to decks of cards with money printed on them to Nintendo Switches. We had a ton of high-end prizes that were anywhere from 45,000 tickets to 550,000 tickets. Game consoles, autographed football jerseys, kayaks. They were quality prizes, but we would get complaints that they were way too many tickets and that they could just go to the store and buy the item cheaper. People didn't realize that the arcade was originally built on playing games, not winning prizes. So they are visiting to spend money on entertainment, not necessarily what they win. It goes back to when I mentioned that people just want prizes now. There are amazing prizes that you can get, but don't forget the real reason you went to the arcade. Was it to get seven now and laters, a slap bracelet, and some Tootsie Rolls? Or was it to go play some video games? With all of these different factors, there's no way to say that one was the sole cause of the arcade shift. It was all of them working together. Where we used to spend our Friday nights with our friends, we now come visit with our families for dinner and entertainment for a few hours. We can play all the video games we want at home and on the go. Why would we need another place to play them? To combat this, arcades had to start changing into these mega funplex prize-winning behemoths. They have to draw you in with food, alcohol, and a chance to win big to make you stay. The times have changed, and so have the places. Now close your eyes again and imagine an arcade. Is it the same picture you had before? Even though I know times have changed, I still like to picture that small joint on the corner where I would go play Tekken with my cousin. Thank you so much for listening. If you're interested more in this topic, I would suggest reading the article For Amusement Only, The Life and Death of the American Arcade by Laura June on The Verge. This article was a big inspiration on how this episode came together. This article and other sources can be found by viewing the show notes. I'm Ty Pigney. Talk at you next time on Backblast. Blast.